All right, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Strength Academy podcast. Grayson here, joined by Mundo. What's up, y'all? And this is episode 67, and the second episode in the zombie apocalypse that is happening right now. Yeah, it's been real crazy. Uh, I don't usually keep up with news and, and things like that too much. Uh, i just more of aware of stuff on the periphery, like through through different avenues like Instagram and maybe some like news articles here and there. But like I haven't really been paying attention to what exactly has been happening with the the coronavirus and and it's actually been causing a lot of problems first off was last week when they canceled spectatorship at the arnold and then so a lot of the the venues and things that have kind of been booked for upcoming weightlifting events are starting to get canceled as well or pushed back so for instance like the one thing that came up this week that was a huge uh disruption to my um my life, I guess you could say, was that Masters Nationals is going to be postponed until August, September timeframe. So like at the end of August, beginning of September, Masters Nationals is going to be coinciding with Masters Worlds now. So um, you can basically attend both events at the same time. It's still going to be in Orlando. Uh, it's still at the same event hotel, but uh, it's just pushed further back in the year. And so we kind of wanted to discuss a little bit, you know, about training frequency not well not training frequency but competition frequency because this was something that Grayson and I were talking about earlier in the week and I'm starting to get to the age where it's just like I don't want to compete all the time like for me it's not as important to get as much experience as I need to competing like I've been doing it for the past five or six years and um, like for me one or two big meets is in throughout the year has been enough but I was just wondering what your take on competition frequency for some of the younger folks that that want to compete and maybe even some of, for some of the older folks as well that like have been competing and maybe they uh they get that itch to to want to compete again and it was like how do you approach uh people's competition frequency as far as like where they're at in their training age and their their biological age um and what what you're what you kind of see like what a good amount of competition should be where you're at you know depending where you're at yeah, so I mean, the the shift away from that big postponement of uh, Masters Nationals now kind of throws a wrench into where we were in training for everybody that was going. So yeah. we were kind of up uh, getting ready to do the last kind of heavy peaking block uh, before heading down to, to the competition. And now that that's postponed another few months, um, we, we had talked about it uh, last week, but we've kind of landed on, well... I mean, if you look at the, the wear and tear that going through, like, kind of a hard peaking block goes, it's like, okay, well, we're actually in pretty good shape right now. We're feeling pretty good. Yeah. So rather than going up and peaking and risking getting hurt testing maxes in the gym for no reason, we're just going to keep the base of work that we've done, drop back a little bit, and then kind of re-aim uh, out towards uh, September and kind of build up again. Because yeah. like we were saying, it's it's kind of that... You know, you feel like you're at this place where you've been competing a lot. You're pretty comfortable with it, um, both on local stages and AO series and Masters Nationals. And uh, Worlds, too. Yeah. Masters Worlds. Yeah. So, like, all of those, you've got experience at all those different venues. So, I don't think that we have to necessarily worry about you getting stage fright at a, at, at a competition. Yeah. You know, so yeah. we don't have to try to find and scramble something local. Um you know, if you get a wrench thrown in your plan uh, and you've built a good amount of work, you don't always have to come up for a peak afterwards. Sometimes you can just kind of say, well, I'm happy with where we're at, but let's just pivot, take a little rest so that 
you can kind of aim for an even higher peak, right? Sure. So now yeah. it's uh, now it's not a you know twelve week training cycle. Now we're stretched out another sixteen weeks from yeah. there uh, right. to kind of aim towards that. And I think that you know for most of you guys doing um, masters nationals have been competing pretty regularly for the better part of the last decade. Um, yeah, it's not a- true in every case. Like there have have been some people that like their first time. Um, competing on the national stage is going to be at Masters Nationals, so I know a few people that that fall in that category too. Yeah, and that's and that's where I think that you have to um, look at uh, training age and competition age. Where if Masters Nationals is going to be your fourth meet, I'd probably want you know somebody who's got less experience competing to maybe do another one. Sure. You know. Yeah. And I think that that's really what it comes down to for me is when you're. First starting out, you're trying to learn the lifts. And then once you learn the lifts, you have to learn how to compete. Um, and and then and then you can kind of start, you know, once you're pretty good at competing, then you can start taking this longer view, like Tyler and Dee and our national level guys do, where it's, okay, here's Masters Nationals, and here's Worlds, and I'm gonna do those two meets this year. Right. Or here's a local meet that I need to qualify, and then here's Masters Nationals. And I think that once you get used to the competition environment, slowing down and competing two to three times a year, uh, maybe four times a year with two meets that are kind of training meets, where yeah. you're not like peaking as hard as you can for those. Right. Um, but, you know, I think that it's really about experience because for our young guys, our, our, our new weightlifters, our youth athletes, um, I really like them to compete. I don't know. I guess four times a year seems reasonable. That's four yeah. training cycles. Um, four four opportunities for improvement and four opportunities to kind of like get some more experience under the belt. Yeah, I think that's a good a good amount as well because like if you look at a typical training cycle, it runs maybe twelve weeks. Like depending on the the, the way that meets pop up um, here in New Mexico, there's maybe one a quarter as well. Yeah, so it's usually so it a quarterly out. event. So that's kind of the approach that I take is I try to get the young guys to go and compete and it's it's hard sometimes because you know talking to somebody who doesn't feel like they're necessarily ready to do it or they're um you know kind of framing it as like no I mean, this is part of it you got to learn how to how to yeah. go to these competitions because i know last time one of our a couple of our youth kids just didn't feel like they their training cycle went super well but then when they maxed out at the end of the training cycle anyway they would have moved their total up by like 10 kilos. Yeah. If they had done it in the meet. Yeah, exactly. So I think that was a good reminder of like, well, no, I mean, don't, don't base how you're feeling three weeks away from the, yeah. the testing date to, to kind of base that off. But I think four times a year is pretty good. Uh, especially if you're starting out. Um, I've heard some people like John North say like, Oh, you should compete every other week and as often as possible. I don't think that that's quite right. Yeah. But I don't think that you should wait to compete until you feel like you're ready because then you're never going to compete. Yeah. And don't um, wait to compete until you think you can win because that's not a good way to approach it either. Cause like you may never get to that point where yeah. like you have a high enough total to be beating other people, especially if they started before you or if they've been in the weight class longer than you have. Um, there's you know, always somebody, there's always there somebody that's, that's like better going to pull something crazy. Yeah. yeah. So I think that, um, what I find kind of interesting is, how, how to plan and structure, you know, off-season training. Because once people start doing weightlifting and they're kind of all in and they're, that's their main yeah. focus, um, 
it gets really, really easy to wake up one day and realize that you haven't taken a break in three years. Yeah, yeah. You know right. what I mean? Yeah, like, I, think I think that I, we've all kind of hit that I've point where there, it's like, yeah. man. Because if you just over and over again finish one cycle and then the next week start building volume again and doing hard training and it's hard training to hard training back to back yeah one high intensity one high volume but i mean it's always hard in the beginning of that cycle so i think that one thing that we're going to be working on is trying to find this optimal level of Maybe we don't need an off-season the same way that football players do, True. right? Where right. we don't need a few months off. Because, let's be honest, the wear and tear that you get playing field sports is going to be a lot different than you get from safely practicing good technique in the gym. Right. Um, but that's not to say that there isn't a wear and tear component to that. And I think that, you know, the off-season, you can think of it as a resensitization to training, right? So if you're always doing the classic lifts... And squatting, eventually, you know, the more repeated a stimulus is, the less effective it becomes because your body adapts, right? Yeah, so it's just like, um, you know, you sweat more the more that you sauna, you know, like eventually you're going to kind of hit a point sure. where to do any more, you're going to have to keep increasing the amount of work that you're doing. And what taking like a deload period or an off season training where Maybe we're going to keep the classic lifts in a couple days a week, but there'll be variations. Maybe we'll shift gears away from heavy squatting to more bodybuilding work, a little bit of kettlebell conditioning, um, just some general body weight stuff. Basically, just if you can take even two or three weeks, maybe a month off after, once you're pretty intermediate and you're like, okay, well, this is my you know, big meat of the year, this AO Series 3 in... Las Vegas say, this is my big meat for the year. So maybe for the three weeks or maybe even stretch that out to a month afterwards, you can do a lot less specific training and kind of build up your general base level fitness, um, work on any areas of flexibility. Cause we all know it's really hard to improve flexibility when you're constantly loading. Yeah. Yeah. Like, we can always work towards better upper back extension, but if you're constantly deadlifting, it's going to stay tight because you're always loading it. So finding that right balance of um, taking time to step back and work on the little things, right? So it's like, okay, well, I'm going to try to get better core control, better body weight stability, um, work on a flexibility area. I think that I'm starting to lean more towards and talking with uh, our, our, well, we'll just call her the team physical therapist because she seems to boast everybody. But kind of talking to her about what different strategies for that offseason look like. And, I mean, it's it's pretty standardized. Like, everybody says, like, do a GPP phase. But I think a lot of times, and I know I get caught up in this, is that sometimes that GPP phase ends up looking a little bit more like specific physical preparedness than general. Right. It's like, okay, well, we're going to power snatch some fives, and we're going to do some tens in the back squat. And while that is much more general than like a peaking protocol. Um, I think one thing that we're gonna start playing with this year is that for people who are kind of going to these bigger meets and they've been training longer and they have it more fatigue accumulated because they're actually lifting weights that are hard for them. Because I think with a beginner, you can kind of compete on that, you know, four times a year and kind of move from one cycle to the next because when 70% is 35 kilos and you can do that for a bunch of reps, that's really not as strong as you are. You know, you're not, 
dying at 70% for triples. But when you snatch, you know, 100 kilos and now 70 and you're just tired, you know, or, you know, think about, you know, guys that are snatching 140, suddenly 70% working weights is, is a little bit just objectively heavier. Yeah. Uh, will cause more wear and tear. So we're kind of thinking about what to do for um, our guys now that we are pivoting towards this new Masters Nationals date right. is taking a few weeks to just resensitize and get everything uh, in working order, feeling fresh. And I think that that's important from a mental standpoint. Yeah, I think so too. I, uh, I've been kind of just like plodding along in my training, just trying to get, you know, from one week to the next without falling apart. And, uh, especially leading up to this, to this, what would have been an April masters nationals. I was kind of feeling like, well, even if I don't put up my best numbers, it's, it's probably like a good idea just to go compete anyway. Like just to, you know, uh, to have the experience. And cause I didn't make it last year. I was, I was sick last year and I, uh, was on, in a rebuilding phase. And so like, I, I kind of thought like it was important to try to do this one. And now that it's been pushed back even further, now it's kind of like even, even further out there. So now I have to find a way to kind of re, um, uh, reorient my goals and reorient my, my motivation for training. And, um, if we take a step back and do some more adjustments to some of the things that we've been doing, uh, I think that's probably a, a good approach, but like pushing hard for another 16 weeks is going to be difficult like from a mental standpoint for me um just because like i might need something in between to kind of to break it up so i was even thinking about like reintroducing jujitsu back in like some of the the stuff that i've been doing just trying to get some extra um other things besides a barbell into my my general physical preparedness like so i was thinking about that and uh but then, yeah, just just hitting training hard again, and then just trying to peak for that that September time frame, and try to get back to to hopefully everything will be back to normal by then. I mean, we don't know for sure. Like, we, it's hard to say because like they canceled a lot of sporting events all over the country, and and in other countries they've you know stopped large gatherings of people. So like anything that involves sports usually has a large gathering of people. So all those things have been either postponed. I don't know how the Olympics is going to work this year. If, if this continues to be a, a trend heading into that summer, like the summer games, like what are, are the Olympics still going to go on? I wonder, or like, or are they just not going to have spectators? Cause that's something people have been training for, for four years. Like they've been looking forward to this for the whole quad. And uh, a lot of these athletes just competed at AO1 for Olympic spots, but like, what what do you think might happen with with that? Well, it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting. Um, from what I've heard in you know uh, infectious disease people kind of talking on the news and that sort of stuff, they think that with warmer weather, these things tend not to um, spread as easily. Oh, really? Um, okay. So it has something to do with how long, uh, like, air droplets from a cough hover in the air before mm -hmm. falling. And in the summer months, that's they, they tend to dry out and come down faster. Okay. So that's why, you know, flu season and cold season tends to be in those cold months. Right. It's just easier for things to float and spread in that kind of way. So hopefully the, you know, everybody paying attention to their hygiene and, you know, whatever... Uh, policies are instituted in your city of how much risk are you at for going out to, you know, movie theaters or whatever. Sure. It is that you're yeah, doing. yeah. But hopefully, so 
as as that warmer weather happens, it'll help dampen some of the spread. So I mean, I I hope that the Olympics will still still be able to go yeah. on because um, yeah. there's going to be. But that's just so much. I mean, it's the pinnacle of international travel. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. No, literally, it's it's travel from every country all over the world into one location. So and uh, you know, so we'll we'll see we'll see what happens. Hopefully, you know the the declaration of national emergency and having drive-through testing centers and all of that stuff set up, they'll be able to kind of uh, get ahead of this thing and uh, what do they call it? Flatten the curve, right? Flatten the curve. Yeah. Um, but. It'll be really interesting to see uh, what plays out because I mean I think uh, we've all had uh, memories of if it's H1N1 or SARS or MERS or any of these other things. Mm-hmm. But I mean, even talking to talking to my mom, it's like she doesn't remember anything like this happening where yeah. it's kind of a, a total shutdown yeah. of international travel and yeah, all as long that as I've. Stuff. I've been alive. This is the first time I've encountered anything where just like everything's getting shut down, like systematically, like people are isolating themselves and um, schools are shutting down. So here in, in Albuquerque, the Albuquerque public school system said that uh, they're going to shut down school for three weeks. And that kind of includes a spring break. So basically two weeks plus spring break. And it ends up being a three week period where uh, the kids are going to be out of school. So my daughter's still in high school and she's finishing out her senior year and uh she's like they canceled prom they canceled like events that were uh, sports related um they canceled anything that had a lot was going to cause a large gathering so like at this point she's like am i going to graduate am i going to am i going to have a graduation is it going to be like a like a facebook live feed graduation where you get your diploma online and you're sitting in your living room like turning your tassel so like there's a lot of like weird things that come along with what's been happening but like the way it's affected a lot of things across the board um i think some people have taken it taken it an appropriate level of seriousness and some people have like over panicked about it. Like I, I don't understand like the the toilet paper hoarding. Well, yeah, like, that, that, that's I, a like, really interesting phenomenon. Yeah, um, it's like panic buying, and, and and the same thing with the stock market and the financial markets. Like people are panic selling. So like there's some behavior that's associated with um, the the spread of this disease or virus. It's not a disease; it's a virus. Um, but like the spread of this virus has kind of caused a lot of like people to overreact. I think to, to me, it's an overreaction. Uh, well, it's, it's a, it's the instinctual, um, you know, people hear things like, uh, you know, social separation, social and, distancing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Social distancing and like, um, you know, like self quarantine if you're sick. And when I think that what people associate with those is like, what you see in the aftermath of, you know, like hurricanes and earthquakes where they're like, oh, I'm going to have to be like hunkered down and right. like stuck inside. Hoarding and, water. But even, and, you know, yeah. the, the cities that are in like lockdown, like I forget what the suburb is in New York City, but there's there's one suburb in New York that uh, they estimated like a one mile kind of close down of every public gathering and stuff. That was in New York? Yeah. But apparently what that means is that, I mean, you can still go around. Like, yeah. Like, so I think what people are imagining happening is the National Guard coming up and boarding your front door <laughs> shut and you're not allowed to leave your yeah, house at all. Yeah. And I think that, you know, it's 
when people are scared, that's kind of a point that you kind of run to. Because right. like if you get caught in that kind of loop of, oh, God, what if this happens? And what if this happens? And what right. if this happens? Right. And then all of a sudden you're buying 80 rolls of toilet paper and all of the rice at the grocery store. Like, go, like I, I went to this, like the day they announced that the schools were closing, I went to the store and decided to buy dinner. And the, the checkout lines were all the way to the back of the store. The whole store was just one line getting broken up into these things. So it was uh, absolutely crazy. I've never seen anything like it. And I imagine that that just comes from, I don't know, uncertainty, right? Because yeah. people don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if, you know, my mom, she's 65. She If she doesn't remember anything like this ever happening, nobody remembers anything. Yeah, like yeah, for sure. You know? Yeah. So I think that you know, when people are kind of faced with uncertainty, brains do weird stuff, you know? Right. It's like, okay, well, what are the essentials? It's like, well, food, and then toilet paper, okay, and bottled water. I need bottled, lots of bottled lots water. Of bottled but what's water. funny about the bottled water is nobody's saying that your tap isn't going to work. Yeah, like, the, like, the, my, <laughs> like I still took a, sh- took a shower this morning. Everything's yeah, fine. Like, like I, You're still going to drink it out of the sink. Yeah. It's okay. Pickle uh, drinks out of the toilet bowl, and she seems to be fine. Yeah, she's asleep right now. Yeah. So, um, so I think uh, it's, it's really interesting to kind of see that uh, – psychology on display yeah it is a little bit weird and, and i know we talk about philosophy and things like that so um a lot of time we think about mental toughness and resilience but what is it like we're we're thinking about like situations that happen like this how does a person take a step back and not buy into this like panic behavior type of ideal right because like well it's we, that uh the idea of setbacks right right yeah so like the whole country has a setback right, right now yeah where it's you know there's there's a risk of spread here for you know small businesses especially restaurants coffee shops yeah, that that operate sure. on those kind of paper thin margins like this is going to be really hard for them and i think that you know one thing that i try to do um and would recommend as an exercise is that every setback is an opportunity to practice practice right um yeah and and to practice your 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 outlook and your reframing right? yeah right. so I if agree. it's oh no i have I'm, I'm gonna have to stay home for two weeks you know instead of worrying or focusing on the fact that you have to do that because there's that's that that's now outside of your realm of control right whether you're gonna have to isolate yourself or whether your business is going to be slow or just whether there's going to, it's like driving over here, it was dead. It was weird. Yeah. So like, we're going to be operating on these ghosty streets for a while and really, really putting yourself into a panic about it isn't going to change the fact that this is happening. Right. Exactly. So I think that you have to take the sensible precautions, right? So like you want to make sure that you're washing your hands and that you're, you know, avoiding people who are sick and maybe not clustering together in groups of 200 or going to a concert, these sort of like reasonable sure, yeah. things. Yeah, but, I mean, it makes sense because like that's, that seems like common sense stuff, but yet we're reminded to do the essential, essentially like five things like wash your hands, don't cough out in the open, like cover your mouth when you cough and sneeze, um, you know, be mindful of your distance with other people, right? Yep. And then... Um, if you're sick, stay home. Like it doesn't really seem like they're, they're prescribing anything that's like out of the ordinary. It's just like, 
why aren't you doing the, these things on a normal basis? Like, why is this just coming up now? Like, have people not been washing their hands after they go to the bathroom? Like, we just <laughs> shake hands and touch each other's, like, genitals and junk through, like, this contact, like, all the time? Well, I mean, <laughs> I, I think that um, we'd all probably be pretty horrified if we had the real stats yeah. on that. Oh, you know? Yeah. Like, if, if we had a way of accurately monitoring whether people were washing their hands, I think we would all come away from it... Um, grossed out and terrified yeah but you know i think so the opportunity to practice is to basically try when you notice that feeling of anxiety or panic about what's going to happen yeah trying to just recognize oh there i am being anxious about uncertainty yeah and then practicing a reframe so um, a, a practical tip is to say okay well I don't ha- I can't go out for two weeks but now I can read this book that I've been putting off sure you know so like try to try to try to find a way to optimistically reframe whatever position you're in yeah you know? so if, if the gym is extra slow for us for the next couple of weeks if we have one or two people in well, I get to give more attention to these the people that are able to come in. Yeah, sure. You know, so that like, you can try to well, try to do a reframe there, try to recognize when you are feeling anxious, and then you know, trying to control what's happening on the national level is impossible. Yeah, and right. just kind of even just letting it go and saying, "Well, I'm going to do what I need to stay safe," and just trying to let it happen yeah i think because we on the like you and i can't steer this no no of course not and and well this goes back to like what we've been talking about before and in other episodes and amongst ourselves about like premeditato malorum the premeditation of evils so like i'll i'll sit and i'll think about like what if i had to close the gym down what would i do like how would life go on because life could life does go on like my uh Somebody asked me like if I was gonna if we were gonna close the gym down because of this and, and I didn't feel like that was necessary. I was like, people know that they need to wipe their stuff down. They know we've told them before if they're sick, stay home. And so like the people that come to the gym, they use it as an outlet to escape from everything else that's going on. And I want that to be available to them if if they want it. Yeah, you know, I'd if they li- still I'd need like it. To help provide normalcy. So so for me, like that's like if I if I panicked and I said, Oh, we're just gonna shut the gym down, just stay home guys, like that's I'm not being rational. Like people can still do the things that they want and need to do as long as they're smart about it. And the way that they can be smart about it is by following the precautions that that you know have been laid out for them. And I think that if if people just took a step back and and looked at their behavior and said, "Do I really need a Costco pallet size of toilet paper like today? Like is that cuz what happens like a month from now the threat dies down, you know, things start to normalize again. And now they have a pallet of toilet paper sitting in their living room. So like that's, <laughs> but like, that's the worst that could happen. Right. Yeah. Like, like if it, if, if it turns into something that's more deadly than it's turned out to be, then things take, take a turn for the worst. Like I, I just have to deal with things as they come at that point. Right. So I don't control anything that's outside of like, my own thoughts and behavior so all i have are my reactions to it so when i went to the grocery store to get groceries 
and and just looking for the bare essentials like toilet paper and things like that like that stuff is all gone like i went to walmart target walgreens and like cleaning supplies and toilet paper are wiped out but for me it's just like you know if i if i catch it my i think i'm in pretty good health like i'm robust like uh physically and mentally like i and if it if if I catch it and I die, like maybe it was just my time to go. Like I have to accept that that's part of reality. But that's like that part of the premeditation of evil. Is like, like I don't control anything that happens outside of what I do for myself and my own thoughts and actions. So like what other people do, I just hopefully they find out that it's less severe than they thought, and and they end up with just that pallet of toilet paper in their living room. But you know you can't stop living life like because like what happens if we don't go back to a sense of norm normalcy right like what's the worst that could happen we just lost the ability to shake hands right yeah <laughs> like pretty much like we just lost our ability to kind of like dab each other and shake hands and do our little handshakes like it's like when the spanish flu came came about right and people were spitting and they were doing this disgusting habit and then all of a sudden this flu came about and people stopped spitting because of it and so it was a, a virus that brought about a change in behavior we were talking about this in the gym too about like the way people's behavior changes you know according to how uh, some 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 things in the world work but like for instance this virus might cause the handshake to go away and some that might be something that we don't do anymore it'll definitely be interesting uh and like i think um you know, it's, it's following the kind of, so follow the guidelines, right? So we're, we're lucky here in New Mexico. I think we only have like 11 cases. Oh, wow. That's um, three more. Well, it's yeah. Cause like it started, there was three on Wednesday and then yeah. it went to six on Friday and now it's up to 11. Yeah. And okay. we're already setting up, um, some drive through testing centers. So it seems like, you know, they're kind of ahead of things because here in Albuquerque, it's a pretty small small area we don't have as much travel as some of these bigger cities yeah but you know so if so you know our policy for you know if we're gonna shut the gym down is just if if you know word comes down from if we're mandated from the yeah, government like says say, all gyms will be shut down if the, you're a physical fitness activity like we'll cease then sure then absolutely if that's what the experts think we should do that's what yeah. that's what we're gonna do absolutely i don't think everybody uh you know you shouldn't shouldn't act like you know more than right. No, of course you what not. To do. Yeah, yeah. So it depends on where you live. Uh, if they say it's not safe to go to your gym, then that's okay. Um, and I know that this is where it's going to be hard for people because, like us, training for uh, you know masters nationals, right. everybody feels like they're training for something, right? So right. if nationals is coming up and you don't have a home gym, you're going to be really tempted to go. But just remember that, like, you know, if you're going to get sick. That's one thing, right? Because most of us, you know, lifting are in this age group where it doesn't really matter. Like, well, yeah. not that it doesn't matter, but it's it's going to be, you know, you're more likely to have a mild case if you're, you know, a healthy, active person. But that doesn't mean that it's okay because, again, it's about transmission. Right. So, yeah. like, if they're saying that you're at risk of getting it and you're at risk of killing your grandparents because you gave it to them right yeah and that's the thing that people that's what's bad about. yeah that's definitely so like, not something that we want to happen at all yeah so i think that that's the main thing is is recognizing that when people say oh well 80 percent of the cases are mild or 85 percent of the cases are mild and like you know people that are 
having, you know, life-threatening complications tend to be in this demographic. Right. If you're not that, then you don't have to worry. I mean, on one hand, they're sort of right in that, yeah, you you can get it and not even notice. You can get it and have mild symptoms. But it's it's about the transmission. Right. It's about who you come into contact with. Yeah. And, like, it's not worth you risking giving it to somebody that does have a complication. Yeah, you just know? because like it's not dangerous for you system. doesn't mean it's not dangerous for somebody else. Exactly. So why, why so, chance it? So if you're torn between following the advice of staying home and worrying about that competition that may or may not be canceled in a few months. Sure, right. You know, like, I know weightlifting is really important to everybody. It's important to like, us. don't risk killing your grandparents yeah. to, like, right. get a workout in. Yeah. You know, so if you're in an area that's, like, really pretty locked down, because there's a few cities here, you know, that, that do have a pretty serious rampant spread at the moment, um, you know, follow the directions given to you at the local level. Because, like, I, again, there's... You can say, I'll be fine all you want, but yeah. if you accidentally get somebody else sick, then you're, you know, culpable there. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, and I think that that kind of like sums up the week that we've had, um, both in weightlifting and, you know, in real life. It's just like both both have been affected by... Um, well, it's all uh, practice, It's all tied right? together, it's right? Yeah, it's all practicing practice. practicing the setback. Yeah. We have the setback of the meats changed. Yeah. We've had the setback of, okay, well, now... The kids will probably be coming in more because schools closed down yeah. unless we also are told to do the same right. thing. Yeah. And I think that, you know, everybody's going to be set back from this and um, using it as an opportunity to practice not um, letting the setback become a catastrophe and not letting it cause you anguish. It's yeah. still trying to find ways to be kind of content or present in your day uh, is, is probably a good... Uh, good thing to do because you've got the extra time now if you're if you're stuck working from home or if your job's canceled and yeah i don't know we'll we'll continue to kind of monitor and see what happens uh like i said if if we're if we're advised that we need to close things down for a couple weeks we absolutely will um you should definitely listen uh to the health experts, yeah. Yes. Listen, listen to the health experts, not the Instagram memes. Yeah, yeah. You can't uh, <laughs> defeat coronavirus by eating 80 pounds of avocado or whatever the hell influencers are, are recommending at the time. Um, but yeah, and then just to kind of recap a little bit, you know, with, with the frequency of competition, um, the newer you are, the more often you should compete. Um, as you get more advanced and you're really trying to start placing uh well at certain events i think um you gotta uh start dwindling down your competitions and kind of picking your battles or you know training meets are are a great way to think of it is okay well now the the fifth day of your workout schedule is just the meet but we still did normal training throughout um and you can start integrating those kind of things as you get more advanced and are comfortable uh, competing in that way. Um, so I think for, for the little kind of weird, weird bit at the end. So Mundo and I have both been taking, uh, Sam Harris's, uh, meditation course, um, which is called waking up. Uh, it's a, it's a pretty nice one. I haven't really used calmer headspace, but it seems like they, this particular meditation app does a really good job of teaching more theory 
um, than just doing the practice and kind of arriving at things. So that one of the little exercises that he does is, is he has an interview with a guy named Richard Lang, who uh, is a student of a man named Douglas Harding. And they were kind of a weird, not religious movement, but kind of spiritual thing where they, uh, they were in the sixties and it was, it's all kind of coming down to this, uh, illusory self, like self illusion right, right. kind of thing. And yeah. The and I, I thought this would be fun to talk about because Muno and I have been chatting about it and uh, it's just melting our brains. Um, so the the insight here is what I think is really interesting because what their whole system of I don't even know if you'd call it meditation. Yeah, uh, it's, it's really hard to classify it. Uh, I don't know if I'd call it meditation either. It's more it's like, like exercises. It's like exploration of conscious awareness. Yeah, so the whole thing is just thinking about what it's like to be you, but purely from a first-person perspective. Right. So trying to kind of take out any associations you have and then just kind of looking at what your experience right now at the moment is like. So the the famous thing that they kind of uh, start with is the idea of having no head yeah <laughs> which is a strange concept because when uh when you experience anything when you look at anything you're always viewing it from your own viewpoint right and that viewpoint is like at the top of your body and the sensation of having no head or the idea of having no head comes from the the sensations that you experience like in just your everyday life so like as you open your eyes and you look around like what is it that's viewing those things right like where is that perspective coming from like where's like where does consciousness arise from is it just the eyes is it the ears is it is it the sensations in your body so like as you sit there and meditate part of what these gentlemen developed in their theory is that the sensation of having no head comes from your sensory like the illusion of your senses right because like you your eyes are viewing the world as it is like they're viewing the world and you're taking in all these colors and shapes and things like this and then you associate different things with them like oh that's a guitar that's a coffee cup that's a computer screen like all these little words that we attach and meanings that we attach to objects they're all coming from one space but like this is the exploration of that space in the sensation that we have in our head. So like to me, when they say that when you view the world, like you view the world through this little scope, right? You have two eyes, but then the field of vision is narrowed down to one thing. And so like you were telling me about the sensation of just like staring out openly, um, like maybe visualizing the space in between your, the object, an object in yourself. Like there's still air, there's still things that exist in between you and that object. There's air, right? There's, there's particles, there's, there's different things in, in, in the atmosphere that make up the composition of the air we breathe. So like all these things are in between us and other objects, but we forget that that space exists sometimes. So like the exploration of, of those types of sensations and those types of ideas are, are something that Richard Lang came, like I came across in, this, in his podcast that he did with Sam Harris. And like, it just blew my mind the fact that we think about 
our perspective, but we don't see our own head ever. Like, it's yeah. just like, it's like you can't lick your elbow, right? Like, that's just that same sensation. Like, you've never seen your own face other than a mirror. You don't know what you really look like. Like, you've never seen yourself, and you probably never will see yourself. Like, so, like, that sensation, like, that's the, the sensation they're talking about, like, having no head. It's a, the sensory of the illusory self. Yeah, so, like, a, a little, a little like, tidbit and how I, I, I kind of try to practice this a couple times, a couple times a day just to, just to feel it out. And so if you're, you know, not driving right now, you can, you can, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, can, you can try this. So if you kind of just pick something and kind of stare straight ahead, I think the first thing that, that I always try to do is become aware that even if I'm looking straight ahead, I still have this field of vision. So paying close attention to your peripherals without shifting your eyes. So if you're, you know, where I, where I sit at home, uh, I can, you know, see the door on one side and kind of a table on the other. And then I have a wall with you know, a desk and things in front, but just becoming aware of how big is your field of vision and can you look at your field of vision as one whole thing? So not putting any deliberate focus into one object, but just trying to see your field of vision as one whole thing. And then without moving your eyes, try to look for your own head. And it's uh, kind of a... (laughs) You can't actually do it. Right, right. So it's an instruction that you can't follow. But if you're staring out, just take a moment to look for your head. And you'll find that it's not it's not there. And that where it feels like you have a head is actually where the world is happening for you. Mm-hmm. So there's, you know, I see my body coming up and I see my hands on my legs. And then where I know my head to be, there's my field of vision and there's the sounds that I hear, but from the first person experience, there isn't a head there. Right. There's sensation and sound and vision. Right. And it's, that's the part that blows my mind. It's so so hard to wrap your head around it. (laughs) And it's, it's easy to write off as a, well, no duh, you can't see your head, but like, you know, your head's there. You can touch your head. Yeah. Yeah. And like the, the favorite comeback that I had, heard from from Richard Lang was it's like well if you if you think about it when I touch my head to you I'm touching my head right you can see me touching yeah my head. but to me my hand has disappeared and there are now sensations yeah but like right but like that's that's the most you know from the first person experience so trying to dissociate these things of like okay well I know that my head is here just take a step back and say, if I had utter amnesia and just opened my eyes like it was the first time I had ever opened my eyes, you what would you would you know what your face looked like? You know? Like that's this weird kind of uh, so No, you wouldn't know what you look like. Like you wouldn't have any you do yeah, you wouldn't have any clue. Like from the first person perspective, we don't have beards. Right. You know? That's true. No, no, that's true. <laughs> significantly less hairy from my point of view. And, uh, you know, these, you know, so one of his little exercises included in that is that if you are walking and you walk sort of slowly and you just try to open your visual field and pay attention to the whole thing and not be narrowed down, you have sensations happening, but it just feels like 
you can get to this place where it feels like the scenery just moves and there's sensations and the scenery moves. But the thing that's aware of that feels really still. So if you kind of get yourself into this open-eyed kind of just experiencing things as they are, not yeah. as you know them to be. So taking all experience out and just saying, what is it like right now? Well, it feels like I'm still and the scenery is moving and there's sensations. Right. And it's this really, really weird uh, way to kind of reframe your perspective in an instant because it doesn't require you to, to sit quietly for 20 minutes uh, you know, with your legs crossed and your eyes closed. Yeah. Right. Yeah, of course. It doesn't require you to do any sort of mantra chanting or like right. anything, anything in depth. It's just take a second to try to notice what it's actually like to be you right now. And I think that's, what's so interesting about it is it's, it's trying to be in connection with what the first person observer is like yeah and then noticing that you know so it feels often that like you know our consciousness is like centered in in our head in right? our head right yeah exactly but one of the weird ways that i've been trying to think about this is it's like well is it necessarily true that awareness is centered in my head i mean again it is we're not making any scientific claims about this. Like right. we know that the brain is responsible for this. Yeah, yeah. But from the first person perspective, you don't know that you have a brain. You only know that you have a brain because you went to school. Sure. And that, like you know, so in your first person experience, you don't experience the hemispheres of your brain. So when you're aware of, okay, well, what do my feet feel like? Well, my awareness isn't in my head now; it's in my feet. I'm aware of my feet. Right. Okay. Well, now, if you open your eyes and you look somewhere, you're aware of that thing over there. So your awareness isn't in your head. It's with the object you're looking at. And you can do these little exercises where if you just try to focus on what being aware is like and you say, look at different objects. If I look at the candle or the microphone or the crock pot, it's almost like your attention reaches out and touches that thing. Yeah, right. Right. So your awareness is kind of projected out into the world from the pers first person perspective. Right, right from the so first So we know that you aren't actually over there. Right. And we know that, you know, there's, you know, matter and reality. But having that awareness of from the first person perspective, there's just kind of this field of things that I'm aware of. And there isn't necessarily as firm a center on that if you're able to kind of like, I don't know, space out is kind of the wrong word, but like, yeah, just like I, I drop back a little bit. Yeah. Um, and, and I know, I know what you guys are thinking. You're like, how high are you guys right now? And the answer is not, look, we're not, we're not high at all. We just find this fascinating because it's like the exploration of consciousness of the, the way that we're aware of things, I think is just something that's fascinating to both of us. And so through meditation and, and levels of meditation and through these theories of practice and things like that, we've just kind of found new ways to observe ourselves and the world. So it's, it's, it's an exercise in self-reflection, but it's also a reflection on the world and how it exists and how we exist in it and, and how we participate and how we observe it and how we shape it. 
And so these are all aspects of our existence that we, we take for granted. And, and now it's just more of like a slowing down and being aware that like these, these things, these aspects of our consciousness and our awareness and our, our exploration of the world around us and this curiosity, it's like it's this sense of curiosity about the world that exists. When you slow down and you take a look at these things, like your own, your own consciousness, your own awareness, your own feelings of sensation and how you move about in the world and how you interact with, with reality and the things around you and the people around you. So like, it's more of like an exploration of like how we exist and how our consciousness plays a part in how we exist. So it's like, to me, that's a fascinating concept. And, and some people might find it a little weird or, or a little bit like on the fringes of like, you know, what people do with their time. But like, I find it fascinating because it's just the exploration of like our inner selves. Like I, I try to cultivate a rich inner life. Like my own, my own inner life, my creative processes and my thoughts are, I think they're pretty rich and well-developed, but like, it's just my interactions with the world and with other people that need, need some cultivation and need help. So this helps me be more mindful of the things around me, the other people around me, other, other forms of consciousness and other forms of life that exist and how I'm interacting with them. Yeah. And I, I, I think that doing little exercises like this is, is almost more approachable, um, than like trying to develop like a traditional sitting meditation yeah practice. yeah and some people do like i know that some people practice like zen buddhism and things like that and there's some aspects of um well zen buddhism that that you, know, you incorporate meditation and things like that and and um I, I don't know exactly a lot about the religious aspects of it but like i know a lot of, about how you know they use meditation to cultivate a sense of like inner peace and balance with the world and balance with themselves within themselves so um that that practice of just being mindful and and meditation doesn't have to take it to this level of the grayson and i are talking about where like where your conscious awareness and you're feeling external objects and like projecting you know your your thoughts and sensations out into the world but it's more of a mindfulness of the fact that you know you're alive in the present moment you are alive you're you're you are experienced you are life embodied in that present moment and just being aware that your your life and that your your consciousness and and those things are a precious gift like and that we should be grateful for them but be aware that we have them too and then just the fact that that we're here is like we should be gr grateful it's, for it it's, it's, it's wild it's a and mad, bizarre. yeah it's and amazing the more you pay attention to like the things that are mundane, the more you realize that it's just so strange in that, you know, from the first person, you've never had a real face to face conversation because your face is always gone. Yeah, it's always. You know? Yeah, it's there's like, there, your, your face is never around. And, right. uh, you know, I think he calls it your no face, uh, <laughs> your you know, no face. Uh, is 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 one of his things where, um, you know, if you go out and you point at different objects and then the last thing you do is you point back into your face and ask, what am I pointing at? From the first person perspective, the answer is nothing. Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. like, you know that your head is there, but from your direct experience, there's just, there's just sort of, it feels like there's this visual field and then just a bunch of emptiness behind it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that, you know, with the physical sensation stuff is one of the things that, that I've been able to notice is that when you're, you know, this is, this is from sitting meditation, but when you do sit for long enough and you just kind of 
dissociate the sensations in your body from what parts of your body they are and you just focus on okay these are sensations you can forget where your hands are like oh that's true yeah like i was sitting on a chair and after about 15 minutes or so i couldn't remember if my hands were on my lap or on the chair and i and it was just there's the sensations here but i just actually don't remember where i left my hands (laughs) and and this seems like a really weird weird thing but it's been it's been really useful to kind of integrating this style of glimpsing the nature of what it's like to be you on any given moment has allowed me to um, work on this kind of uh, trying to figure out what what being is really like yeah uh, in my day-to-day more because there's meditation practice which is great for the 10 or 20 minutes that you're doing it but throughout your day trying to be more mindful, I find this, can I see my whole visual field? Can I just take a step back to notice that like I'm still and things move around me? You know, these sort of little things um, have been really helpful to try to just get little glimpses of mindfulness throughout the day that doesn't require you to sit for 20 minutes. Um, It's really weird. So again, Richard Lang, and Douglas Harding are the ones that that talk about this you can find plenty of YouTube videos of these guys if you think it sounds kind of interesting they aren't selling any metaphysics so they aren't saying anything about the state of the world yeah there's nothing religious or like there's no dualism tied into it it's just it's just the practice exactly so you know if you're if you're interested in that sort of stuff I would I would check out uh, some of Richard Lang's stuff Uh, Douglas Harding uh, has been dead for 20 years yeah but um you know, they're, they're pretty interesting, and these little exercises that they do, um, you can see it right away. And you can say, oh, man, I, there's, okay, <laughs> like that, I'm, I'm not the same as this yeah. visual field. Like, there's an awareness that, um, you know, because if you, if, again, we're defining consciousness as experience or awareness. Right. So... In order for you to see, that's within awareness. In order for you to hear, hearing is with the sounds are within your awareness. Right. And as are your thoughts. So in order for you to recognize that there's a thought, you have to first be aware of it. Right. Yeah. And so trying to operate from the point of view of awareness more than you're operating from the point of view of thought. Yeah. It's it's like um I don't know if, if you've been fly fishing or anything like that, but like if you're standing in a stream of water, um, if you stand there long enough, eventually if you forget you're standing in a stream of water. You just feel the pressure, the sensation of the pressure of the water pushing against your legs. But thought is a lot like that stream, like consciousness is like that. Like you have all these thoughts and things coming at you all the time and you're standing still and you can be aware of all these different aspects of, of being in that water, of being in that stream of consciousness. And I think these are just tools to kind of help you have more balance in the way that you respond to things as opposed to just reacting. So it helps you set yourself apart from just like a the purely animalistic way of behaving, right? So it takes you more into a, a more reasoned, um, not it doesn't lack emotion, it embraces emotion, but in a way that keeps you distant from just being reactive 
and it helps like me on a daily basis like try to be less reactive and, and i still have my moments i still have moments where i'm just upset pickle chewed my dsl cord and ruined my internet for like three days and i was i was pretty pissed but like i i stayed angry less because i knew that like i knew i was angry it was like so why am i upset i'm upset because she chewed the cord why am i upset because she chewed the cord because now i don't have internet like why is that important well i'm now i'm not gonna be able to do my classes online or like i'm i'm gonna be a little more bored but is it bad can i can i spend that time reading so like i was more reflective about it like i, I was able to take a step back and be less angry over it and like now i'm actually happy about it because i got cable and it's twice as fast as what i had before dsl so it's like it turned out to be a good thing so it wasn't bad at all like it turned out to be an even better thing so like but like be i could understand being upset about it being upset at pickle like you know she she didn't know any better like she doesn't know that she's not supposed to chew cords yeah like i know it's it's like they don't don't know but at one point like i would have been so upset like i would have taken it out on her and just been like you know what this is her fault like she she's the cause of all my problems but like i took a step back and i was just like you know what she chewed the cord what can i how do i I fix this instead of focusing on like what she did just focusing on like all right well what can i do to fix this what can i how can i make this go back to, to the way it was but like I think that for a lot of a lot of time, like meditation and things like this, and you don't have to use Sam Harris's app. Sam Harris is a neuroscientist, and he focuses on a more like practical kind of no metaphysical uh, stuff attached to the to the practice of meditation. But there's also like the Calm app, where they use more transcendental meditation or varying aspects of it, where like you're focusing on um, you know loving kindness and and um, keeping the self calm and things like that. And, and, and there's, there's different approaches to meditation, but I think we're, we've kind of stumbled upon this because we're interested in exploring our, our reactions and the way we think about interacting with ourselves and with the world. And, and I think that it can be helpful um, if you try to implement these practices, even in a small way, it doesn't have to be like this big meditation thing for you, like this meditation journey, but like two minutes of self-reflection, journaling at the end of the day, if you'd rather do that, uh, just ways to evaluate your behavior and, and how you like Winston Churchill used to give himself a court martial every night and ask himself, like, if how did he live? And, and kind of like meditation is a way to do that. And, and sometimes journaling is a way to reflect on how, how it is that you live and how it is that you, you've gone about your life throughout the day and maybe holding yourself accountable. If you want to be held accountable to a higher standard, that's a way to do that. If you want to, you know, improve or, you know, uh, just be a better human being, being aware of your, your own conscious reactions to things like it's, it's a way to do that. Yeah, so I mean, whatever style you use or whatever, uh, you know, avenue that kind of leads you into this, if it's more of these kind of glimpsing of what the world is like right now or kind of more reflective, uh, you know, different practices, that what they all have in common is that they encourage you to be living an examined life yeah. where you try to, you know, try to notice what, what you're doing and not just get caught up and stuck in your, your kind of loops and I think the you know the the main goal is 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 not discovering anything about the true nature of mind because I right. don't think anybody's going to really land yeah. at a satisfying answer there. But I think that if you can, you know, identify the the half life of negative emotions like anxiety or anger, fear, is shorter, grief, the sooner you pay attention. Yeah, exactly. So if you can notice that you're getting angry you'll be angry less long. Yeah. You know, the, the, the time that you spend in, in that kind of self-imposed suffering 
being mad at your dog for pooping in the living room. You know, she already forgot she did it. Yeah. It you know, like... you can't do anything about it. So you're really just torturing yourself when you're when you're letting these sort of things run rampant. And just using any sort of uh, meditation task to kind of recognize early warning signs for, oh, I'm getting angry. That's weird. It feels like this in my chest when yeah. that happens. And you can kind of start to notice these sort of, uh, these sort of things. And using... Uh, you know, the, the having no head uh, exercises is uh, a way to kind of approach that from a different angle where it's just like, oh, well, if I'm here, where is the anger? And then you kind yeah. of try to notice what that feels like. And for me, anger doesn't feel like it's in my head. Anger feels like it's in my chest. Yeah, it feels like in it's know? a ball, like a ball of energy, like in your in And your you center. know for a fact that, again... From a, like a neurological perspective, that's not where anger is. No. But from a first-person perspective, that's where it is. Right. Yeah. So if you can just be more aware of, oh, I'm getting that feeling. What comes first, the feeling or the feeling, right? So right. like the feeling in your chest or the feeling of being angry. And if you start to notice the physiological early warning signs of, you're getting kind of heated right now. You feel that tightness. Okay. Now's when you need to step back. Right. Like, so I think that. Basically, just learning yourself a little bit better and paying attention to what it's like to be you, yeah. and that you can have a mind-blowing time just <laughs> sitting still with your eyes open and being like, "Whoa, have you ever noticed what the shape of your field of view is?" I hadn't until a yeah. couple of weeks ago. I didn't, I didn't like I, know I have never thought it. about it, but there is a shape to my visual field. It's not wide open. There is a kind of ovalness to it. Right. And, you know, my brain does edit out my nose, so it looks like there's this unbroken field of vision. But you know that's an illusion. Right. So what else is an illusion? Maybe everything. Maybe everything. <laughs> so, well. so that's my best explanation of having no head. It's something that Mundo and I have been talking about just because it is so entirely yeah, confusing. Yeah, it's fascinating, yeah. Uh, and trying to follow a direction that is impossible to follow kind of leaves you in this place where you're confused, but your eyes are more open. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's real weird. I, I advise you guys to play with it a little bit. It's kind of fun. It doesn't require you to do anything. Um, so yeah, on having no head, Douglas Harding and Richard Lang, very interesting stuff yep. uh, to include in your practice or to try playing around with. If the idea of sitting still, this doesn't appeal to you. Um, but yeah, don't panic, guys. We'll be back next week with another episode. Uh, we're trying to line some guests up, but we'll see if the quarantine effect has any effect on uh, whether we can get people to sit in close proximity. <laughs> yeah, and have uh, some more conversations like this. So, uh, all right, y'all. Well, we appreciate y'all listening. We hope that you're staying safe out there and continuing to train. And uh, until next time. Wash your hands. <laughs> yeah, happy lifting, y'all.